Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikel Rogers-Wood. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, a retired dean of general studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time. So mom, how much did you know about the process of being diagnosed with cancer and then going from diagnosis to treatment? I mean, yes, childhood cancer does occur, but it seems that in terms of people knowing someone who's been diagnosed, um, that happens more often as we get older. So I would guess that you experienced that process with your friends um, more frequently than I have yet. Yes. Are you telling me I'm old? Um, no. More, ex- more experienced. <laughs> more mature. And, and therefore, as you, um, as you become more mature, you are correct. I have experienced people, or I have known people, friends, very close friends, who've been diagnosed with, with cancer. We also talked to Amy about what it's like to be diagnosed and the difference between what's happening for the individual, and what you see on the outside. Something that you and I talked about when we first met was how I typically learn that people have cancer on like Facebook, or if we're closer, they'll call. But by the time that happens, they're able to tell me what kind of cancer it is, what stage it is, and what kind of treatment they're going to have. And You know, unfortunately, um, one of our other guests this season, I walked through it with her and realized, oh, it's not like a two-day process. So can you tell us more? Yes. As you were saying that, I I was thinking, you're not finding out very quickly about their diagnosis. Um... So I think the waiting is, is one of the hardest parts of this entire experience. Um, this is the, the timing, um, is kind of ironic for me or symbolic, if you will, because this week marked the one year anniversary of me hearing the words, you have cancer. Oh, wow. Um, but that process, that was at least a three, if not four month process to get to that diagnosis, depending on where you want to start the story. Um, so I went in for my routine annual well women exam, um, as is normal for me. They wrote me a prescription to go get my annual mammogram. I went in for my mammogram. We weren't expecting anything out of the ordinary. They had even done a breast exam in my appointment. And um, to my knowledge, there were no concerns. Um, I do have a history of fibrocystic breasts. And so that means that I have cysts. And it was almost at this point that I was desensitized to the mammogram process because Mm -hmm. I always get called back for an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you go through that quote unquote scare and then they come back and say, oh, it's nothing. We'll continue to monitor you. And so um, I like to share with people that I had my first biopsy in 2008 after my second child was born. And at that point, I asked the surgeon, you know, what are the chances that this is going to come back as cancer? And he said about 11%. And at that point in time, 
that was not acceptable to me. I was like, you don't understand. I have two babies at home. That number needs to be zero. You fast forward a decade, multiple mammograms, multiple uh, being called experiences being called back for ultrasounds. Um, I don't know if you know what a BIRAD score is, but it's a score that's associated with your mammogram. It's a mm -hmm. scale of zero to six. Um, this time around, my BIRAD score was a five. That is the highest you can have without actually being diagnosed with breast cancer. Wow. That meant my chance this time was 95%, wow. 95% chance that it was going to come back as cancer. And I still, my husband even says the day before I officially found out, he could tell I still thought it was going to come back and they were going to say, oh, it's nothing. You know, mm. it, we're just going to continue to watch. Um, but that's not what happened, obviously. And I want to be an advocate for other women and men because I was not aware prior to my diagnosis that this is an issue for men as well. It's not just a female issue. Obviously, it's more predominant in women. Um, but it turned out that I knew a man who had had breast cancer. And if I hadn't been diagnosed, I would have never even have known that. So, okay. um, but I do want to share with I want to encourage people to be an advocate for themselves because I did get a second opinion um, once I was diagnosed um, from when it came to surgeons. And the first surgeon I met with was going to leave it up to me if I, to whether or not I wanted to get an MRI. And fortunately, where I ended up being treated, um, that was not a choice. That was just part of the protocol. And I'll tell you why. Um, we knew I had one suspicious mass. Then I was confirmed through a biopsy that that was cancer. But when I went in for that first biopsy, they immediately saw two tumors. And so the, radio the radiologist said, if you're okay with it, I'm just gonna biopsy both of them because otherwise you're gonna leave and I'm gonna call you back. And of course, do what you need to do. And they both came back as cancer. And then they sent me for a diagnostic MRI it was the diagnostic MRI that I believe saved my life because they ended up finding seven separate tumors. Oh my gosh. It, it was across both sides of my chest. And um, so ultimately I did have a double mastectomy last year. And that, so that it, it in the beginning of the conversations of being diagnosed, it's like, here's your options. And that first surgeon said, this is just going to be another case of a mammogram saving somebody's life. You have one tumor. Um, you know, I'll leave it up to you to have an mam uh, MRI, but just know that could open up Pandora's box. I don't know what that meant to him, <laughs> but I am grateful that we opened up Pandora's yeah, I mean, box. I feel like it, it, this is not an ignorance is bliss kind of a situation. Exactly. Like we need to know. No. Amy's situation with needing a second opinion got mom and I thinking. So something else I wanted us to chat about um, this evening was um, your thoughts about how sometimes we as patients are told, oh no, it's not a big deal. Um, and well, first of all, have you had an experience like that where you felt like your concern was um, invalidated? And then also wondering, at what point does a person 
decide, you know what? I need a second opinion or I need to switch doctors because my understanding is that this happens to women far more than men and it happens to people of color far more than um, kind of the mainstream population. Mikkel here. I've included some links to articles discussing the bias and downplaying that women and people of color often experience when it comes to diagnosis. You can find those links in the notes for this episode. Well, you know, that is true. And you, I, your mother may have told you of a time or two when she walked out of a doctor's mm-hmm. office for that very reason. Or I may have changed doctors simply because the doctor was not necessarily listening to me or was listening with half an ear and was on the way out. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I'm... Um, I think, too, that some doctors, not all of them, but some doctors feel in a way that they are the end all. They know it all. And if they tell you it's not important, I would dismiss it that we as patients have to take their word for it. I don't. Yeah. Even though I'm a woman of color, first of all, I'm a woman of I'm, I'm a person of color. And I'm a woman. But at the same time, I have learned very early that if a doctor is unwilling to spend the time with me to answer my questions to my satisfaction, I am going to leave or I am going to change doctors because I'm, yeah. or I always yeah. go into the doctor's office thinking, okay, well, I have this question or that question and I need it answered. And when a doctor simply says, don't worry about it, my antennas go up. But doctors have a way of doing that sometimes. And and maybe sometimes they are right because they have more knowledge than we do. But at the same time, I think it's a doctor's responsibility to to put our minds at ease. That is what's called the bedside manner. Some people have it, some don't. Well, and I think that you made a really good point about, in truth, sometimes certain things that we worry about are not actually medically significant. And what I mean by that is that it's not going to change our medical outcomes or how we live day to day. And I I think with the advent of Dr. Google and WebMD, (laughs) like it, that doesn't help the situation any, right? Right. But what you said, I think was, was the key that something that I learned over the years, particularly kind of working right next to the medical field and then cross-functionally or in in an interdisciplinary way with physicians is that medicine can be inexact or medicine is inexact. They are doing the best that they can with the information that they have. And even in psychology, there's all this stuff that we have to do with differential diagnosis because one symptom appears in more than one disorder. However, you made a really good point about, or your point about sit down and talk me through it. Don't just say, it's fine. If you can tell me why maybe we need to watch or why right now we're not going to worry, but we'll test again later. That's far more helpful and informative. If I'm you know worried about something. Do you remember, you know, talking with Amy about that and how important advocacy is? And I I also think that the culture is changing. Um, When I was a kid, we did not have ads in magazines or on TV about 
medications and discuss this with your physician, whereas mm-hmm. you do now. And although that can be tricky because, you know, as I didn't go to medical school. So as a patient, if I'm like, oh, I saw this really cool ad. Can we talk about this medicine? I don't know if that's always so fun for the physicians, but I do think, I guess to go back, the culture was often the doctor is the expert. You just take what they tell you. And I I think that there has become, or there is starting to be a shift to, wait a minute, I need to ask you questions and, and I'm coming prepared with questions. And so the expectation for a lot more patients, at least I hope, is I'm allowed to ask you. But that also gets to the bedside manner because, you know, I have interacted with physicians who make it clear, I'm just here because my body needs to be here in order to sign off on this chart. I'm out. People who are older tend to be more reluctant. Is that a cultural piece? Because back when they were young, you didn't do that. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's, I think they were socialized into believing that the doctor knew, the doctor knew all. Exactly. And therefore, for the doctor to say, okay, you know, I have a headache and my I have um, blurred vision. The doctor would say, oh, you just need to change your glasses. When it may really be something in your brain. Yeah. That has to be further examined. But the older people of the older generation would say simply, well, the doctor said this. The doctor says I just need to go home and sleep or rest without actually pushing to find out why that is or whether a test could be taken right. for that. That's why we encourage people to get second opinions. Yeah. And that some people, are, they don't necessarily go for the second opinion. They believe that their doctor, that single doctor knows it all and whatever that doctor says is what they're going to follow. Or they might feel bad about getting a second exactly. opinion. To ask, Yes, exactly. Because to get a second opinion, you've got to take take your medical right. records. And I find that, um, well, I find it really interesting because I have interacted with a number of people who have said that their doctor pretty much kicked them to the curb for saying, mm, I want to check on that. I need a second opinion. Can you give me a referral? And it's it's so interesting because the training in psychology, at least the training that I got, was... It is going to happen to you that you don't click with a client or they want to look around before they pick, you know, their longstanding therapist. And I've just, I mean, that's not to say that it's exciting if a client's like, yeah, I don't want to see you anymore. But it's something that I just assume is going to happen sometimes. I even tell new clients you know, I hope that you got what you needed out of this session. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that I understand? And I also tell them therapists are like shoes. Just because we're in your size doesn't mean that we fit. So if for some reason I don't feel like a fit, I want you to look at, at working with other people. I'll even give you referrals because it's all about you getting what you need. And so I'm kind of surprised that that is not part of what some physicians just have in mind. No, they don't. Um, But, you know, as you talk about um, size and shoes and all of that, 
I was in the educational field and it happened to me too. There are times when students would come and say, I want to go to another class. I want to go to another professor. Mm -hmm. And yes, there is that bit of a, I won't say ego, but a bit of, I'm sorry, I could not be the end all for Mm -hmm. you. But at the same time, you have to respect the fact that sometimes people need to try something else. You are just not what they need at that time. Yeah, and I think that that is an essential part of the perspective of saying it's about the client or the patient or the student getting what they need, them getting the best for them. Exactly. And it doesn't really have a lot to do with me. No, no. Um, And then for the patients, recognizing that going after the best care is your right. It is not something that you have to apologize for. You shouldn't ever. Yeah. Back to Amy. And then the other part of that is when we did get to the staging part, like there's a, so I was diagnosed or officially on April 17th. I did not have my first surgery until July 6th. And that waiting period is excruciating. I imagine. But Amy, didn't you feel like telling the doctors, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. I did. (laughs) I did. The breast surgeon that I ended up with, we, I love her. Um, She ended up calling me back one night at eight o'clock at night because she'd been in the OR all day long. So I was really grateful. I love, I love the team that's taking care of me. Um, But I said to her at this point, because even if you go back to before I was diagnosed, just the follow-up mammograms or scheduling the follow-up ultrasound, there was four weeks in in between two of those appointments. And I remember, not proud of this, but I said it just to myself, I sure hope I don't have cancer. You know, I was sarcastically saying when I hung up the call from that scheduling, because I was irritated at that point. You're telling me there could be something wrong, but you can't fit me in for four weeks. And so in oh and, and every step of this process, there's so many different specialties involved. And it's like, well, let's just wait for this. Or one week isn't going to make a difference. And that phone call that I'm talking about, I did say to the breast surgeon, I said, at what point do we get to, it has been too much, too, too long, because I started this process in January. You know, mm-hmm. you guys weren't, you weren't part of the process then. But for me, mentally and emotionally, this process started in January. And she's like, I hear you. And we we're going to get you scheduled. And so when you hear those words, you just want it out, I think, yeah. at least for me, as quickly as possible. And I'm an advocate that I don't care what stage you are. I don't care what kind of cancer you have or any life-threatening illness. When you get that diagnosis, it just changes your life. Um, Mm. so I'm not, I don't like sometimes I've had plenty of breast cancer survivors say, well, I was just a stage zero or I was only a stage one. That doesn't matter. Like don't minimize your feelings or don't minimize your experience. Like that, it is a scary, scary experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll tell you another part of this for me. One, it helped me because when when they did get to the staging part for me, they said, 
there's a difference. There's your anatomical stage and there's your prognostic stage. So anatomically, I'm stage three. I just missed stage four because it's in my lymph nodes. Prognostically, though, because of the type of breast cancer I have, they said I was stage one. When I was initially diagnosed with breast cancer, yeah, I felt alone. I processed that, figured out what I wanted to believe it was, you know, and and we waited and we waited to see if it would grow or shrink because I was just finishing breastfeeding my daughter. So I didn't know if this was just a milk gland or, you know, I just didn't know. So we watched it and we waited. That's Lauren, the young mom of three who was a teacher prior to her diagnosis with cancer. And it wasn't until it started growing we can actually like, see it change. So we said, well, this isn't going to resolve itself. It's something we need to step in for. So, you know, that was months, right? And then we go to a general practitioner and then the nurse actually gives me the name of uh, a gynecologist and the gynecologist says, yeah, this is a bad thing. Let's get this going tomorrow. And then tomorrow your life changes, stops and everything gets wiped out. You know, she looks at you in the face and says, no, none of your plans matter. This is the only thing in your life that matters. And it's just this jarring reality that something is, I mean, again, this uncertainty, like if none of my life and plans matter at this point, then how bad is, what, what is actually gonna happen right now? And then yeah, you go to a scan. Um, when I walked out of the scan, my doctor actually stayed late in the office so that I could come directly back to her and wait for the results. And um, and she told me there that I had breast cancer. But even after that, I have to go find an oncologist and the oncologist has to review the results and then they have to make it a plan, a medical plan for you. So it's so much waiting, right? And even after you, you know, you have all your blood work and you have a PET scan and you have every possible scan you can get. And then you have to have surgery for a port. And then you wait two weeks for that to heal before you can actually start chemo. And the whole time that people are processing the information, all you can think about is this cancer is growing. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. what, what are we like, can we not just do something today? You know, these, these void moments, these, these down times when you're not taking active action, <laughs> you're not doing something. These can be the most difficult. We're hearing that there's a ton of waiting during the process of diagnosis, but Sometimes that waiting comes for a slightly different reason. The experience of having an appointment during COVID, like you have, remember you had, um, I know I set up my appointments pretty well in advance because of scheduling, my schedule, the doctor's schedule, and then COVID, this completely unexpected thing shows up and it throws into sharp relief the doctor's appointment. And I, I remember actually having a dental appointment set up and being like, <laughs> oh, uh, hard pass. I'm not going to go somewhere where like, I have to open my mouth. And like, there's no way of masking if you're going to the dentist. So that is one of, because we're somewhat, we're somewhat removed from the pandemic at this point. So it's, it might be hard to remember kind of that, that state uh, that we were all in. First of all, I canceled a number of my doctor's appointments. I was also afraid of the fact that I would go into the doctor's office and the office would not be set up in such a way that I would be um, comfortable. So what I did is I canceled all my appointments. 
the year that it was COVID, like I had to go have a mammogram. And I actually remember being like, okay, I'm going to that one. But I know that for a lot of routine care and screenings, a lot of people skipped it. And I remember reading something about how Katie Couric, her screening appointment was very delayed due to COVID. And then she ended up being diagnosed with cancer. And and I think that was part of what she was talking about, like not putting it off. And COVID is actually, I feel like, a very valid reason why many of us just did not engage in our routine care. You know, that is true. But I also think that many of the um, the medical practices delayed or postponed, as a matter of fact, many of what they considered routine, uh, you know? Yeah, I think you make a good point because I, and again, this is, it's recent memory, but there's so much that happened in the last two years that I'm probably forgetting certain things, but I do like you remember canceling appointments, but I'm sure a number of just basic appointments were canceled for me because it was like, let's not go in, you know, in April or, or may come back later. So yeah, I think you're right. I also think too that because many of us delayed our appointments, I wonder how many people actually, um, like Katie Couric, missed the, the opportunity to catch their illness earlier. Because I'm not necessarily because the doctors um, postponed it, but we as patients decided it was too dangerous to go in there. And since you were feeling okay, okay, what's a routine checkup? We don't have to do that right now. We can wait until later. You make a really good point that unless you have reason to think that it's something horrible, um, it, it kind of becomes this cost benefit analysis or not kind of, it was a complete cost benefit analysis back then because part of the calculus is I could risk catching COVID if I go into a doctor's office or the ER. And actually I know of people for whom that became a reality. They had to go to the ER and they ended up catching COVID while there. And so that was what a lot of people had to do. And Malu talks a lot about how that played into her own experience of being ill and then that diagnosis not coming for a long time. I've had asthma and I've had like um, allergies, like seasonal allergies and so forth. And in August, I got a sinus infection that became bronchitis, that became pneumonia, but it was during the COVID Delta surge. And I am fully vaccinated, but I have, um, my two kids have asthma and respiratory issues. And so we've been very locked down to protect them because they're not old enough for vaccinations yet. And so I was really sick. I live in an, on an island in Hawaii and we don't have 
I mean, Hawaii's absolutely great, but we don't have the same kind of hospital reach that you do in the mainland or in the continental United States. Mm -hmm. So we can't just go to the next state or the next county if, you know, the hospital's full. And all of our hospitals were at 100% capacity when I was sick and they were treating people outside. And my doctor was really afraid that it would become COVID pneumonia. So I never went to the hospital. He just tried drugs on me out of the hospital. And at the end, when I finally got better, and I, it was actually really horrible, like, to be honest with you, because I thought I was going to die then, because yeah. it was really hard trying to figure out how I could get better but not be able to go to a hospital. He finally found the right medicine combination, and as I got over it, I didn't have a smell. And um, I, I had been tested multiple times for COVID, and I never had COVID, and I had totally lost my smell. And I started getting chronic sinus infections. So I was just constantly sick, constantly having a runny nose. And it took a long time for me to finally convince my doctor, hey, this isn't okay. I need to go see an ENT. To be continued, join us next week to hear more about Molly's journey toward diagnosis. Next time on At The Same Time. And so she sent me in for a CAT scan. And I went in to talk to her. And... She opened the CAT scan and was like, oh, hold on a minute. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate and subscribe to At The Same Time on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss a single episode. We'd love for you to connect with us online. Our website is sametimepod.fireside.fm. You can also send us an email Our address is sametimepod at gmail.com. Thank you to our guests, Malu Panohu, Amy Artuzo, Sarah Haverstick, and Lauren Huffmaster. Episode written and produced by Dr. Nikkel Rogers-Wood. Music by purpleplanet.com. Copyright 2022 by Nikkel Rogers-Wood, PhD, and Elsa Rogers, PhD.